In this episode, we discuss architecting industrial IoT solutions using the unified namespace. And my guest on this episode is David Schultz. David is the owner of G5 Consulting. He works with manufacturers to help them develop and execute strategies for their digital transformation and asset management initiatives. He has 25 years of automation and process control experience across many market verticals with a focus on continuous and batch processing. A quick thank you to our sponsors. This episode is made possible by our friends at HiveMQ who are providers of an enterprise-grade edge and cloud-based MQTT broker. So please do check them out to help support this podcast. Welcome to the fourth generation podcast here on industry4o.tv, which is a series of weekly interviews designed to help you learn industrial IoT from some of the world's leading practitioners. So if you're new here, please do subscribe and click on the notification bell to make sure you never miss any of the interviews. If you find this conversation interesting, please review it with five stars on Apple podcast and follow on Spotify. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn at Kutzai Mandi Teresa. Now, here's my interview with David. Okay, David, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I, I saw the topic list that you wanted to cover, and I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about this conversation. We're going to have a lot of good stuff. I think we're going to get to a lot of the meat of what's going on specifically around this whole unified namespace and how you architect industry 4.0 systems. So it's going to be a great topic, great conversation. Looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I really want to talk to you about uh, how to architect an industrial IoT solution uh, for manufacturing uh, with a, a particular uh, focus on the unified uh, namespace. So yes. uh, I think it's it's important to, to begin by establishing a definition of the unified namespace. And now to, to, to make it relatable to our audience, uh, can you define that for us by comparing the unified namespace uh, with the traditional industrial architecture that a lot of us are familiar with? Yeah, so a unified namespace, the definition is that it becomes the single source of truth for all of your data and events, and it mirrors the structure of your business. And that's, that's a very high level abstraction. Okay, I think about it. Think of a UNS as an endpoint that all of my information flows through. And there's some variations within a UNS of what all of it, it actually that it does. But the idea is that any piece of data, any data, any event that occurs is going to make itself known through a unified namespace. And then other systems and, and people that are interested in that event or in that data are able to consume it coming through that, that whole unified namespace. What's different about it in, in specific to or relative to the context of, you know, we'll just call it an industry 3.0 system. And I want to be very clear, it's not industry 3.0 bad, industry 4.0 good. It's just how things got architected, how we solved problems for the last 25 years within automation. An industry 3.0 architecture is really more of a point-to-point -point type solution, or you're integrating you know, individual components. I, I call it the Dem Bones model. And it's, you know, my PLCs are connected into my HMIs or into my SCADA. My SCADA system is then integrated into my MES. My MES is integrated into my ERP. And if you think about the investment for doing all of those, let's just say that PLC to SCADA integration, that's going to cost you a dollar. 
that uh, SCADA to MES is going to cost you maybe $3. And then that, that MES into ERP, that's going to cost you $5. So just in terms of the relative scale of how expensive it is to integrate all of this. The other piece of that is that anytime there's a new connection that has to be made, starting at the PLC layer, you have to integrate it at all layers of it. And it means that it it's becomes this one-to-one relationship that if I have one amount of effort here, that anytime I do that same effort, it's going to be one amount of effort every time I roll it out. And that's what we're trying to avoid within an industry 4.0 architecture, utilizing a unified namespace. That is new intelligence is presented inside of that unified namespace. If it's been architected correctly, that integration becomes lower and lower in cost because the other systems are able to dynamically consume that information. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Technically speaking, uh, the unified namespace can be um, achieved using uh, like any kind of communication protocol out there. Um, but uh, overwhelmingly, the, the 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 there is the use of MQTT to implement the unified namespace. Now, what I would like to find out from you is uh, why does MQTT, why is MQTT or Sparkplug best suited for the implementation of the unified namespace? Well, I don't know if I would say it's best suited. Um, I would say that it is probably the most common. It's the most pervasive. And, and that's something to keep in mind, the way that we architect systems, um, and I'll refer to the ISA 95, it's, it's not like, hey, this is the absolute best only way to do it. It's more of a, this is how we do it and got the best results. And you're going to see that same thing with MQTT. I more focus on a technology. So there's some, what we refer to as minimum technical requirements. So it's that, uh, you know, open, lightweight, report by exception, edge driven, and MQTT affords that. If you take a look at the history of MQTT, it was started in the late 90s, purely as a, a SCADA type um, protocol that could get information out of uh, the oil fields. So there was some information, it was SCADA, very um, low bandwidth. How do we do that? MQTT evolved for that. Um, and then about seven years ago, Sparkplug was added on as a specification on top of the MQTT in order to get some more automation and control capabilities. So, you know, what was interesting in the history of MQTT is that it was developed for SCADA but it was more of an IT function early on. Why? Because people that work within IT, they're familiar with the concept of message queues and you know, publishing uh, the PubSub type method that was not as common in automation. And um, you know, MQTT, the best part of MQTT is that you can publish to any topic. The worst part of MQTT is you can publish to any topic. So that's why you're seeing more of the MQTT spark plug specification used in automation because a number of the automation companies finally said, ah, yes, this solves some of the limitations of MQTT. And then you had a pretty good adoption by a number of automation companies. Um, Ignition, Opto22, Canary Labs, um, uh, Factory Studio from Tatsoft, um, uh, Signalfire. I mean, there, there's just a, 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 an ever-growing number of companies that are sitting in that controls and automation layer that are utilizing MQTT. So in, in sort of best suited, it's because that's where you're going to gain the most amount of support. So maybe just to linger on that a bit. So you mentioned the the four technical minimum technical requirements. So is there any protocols out there that you know of that meets those requirements? 
Yeah, so AMQP is another very popular one. Um, it's more of a Microsoft type uh, application. Um, one of the advantages of AMQP is that it supports the idea of a message queue. So one of the limitations of MQTT, and this comes up, is that if I publish into a broker, so that's the, the architecture of an MQTT, is that I have a piece of technology, there's a client that is publishing data into a broker, and then I'm also subscribing data back. So it's a pub-sub model. That's exactly what MQTT is designed to do. One of the limitations we've run into is that if I publish into the broker, I know that I published to the broker, but say I want to send you a message and I'm going to put a broker in the middle. I can publish to that broker and I just have to assume that you receive that message. Now, you can publish back to me and say, hey, I got it. But if I don't receive that, there's really no mechanism for me to go about and determine, OK, what happened? It's, you know, it's think about all these video calls that we get in and it's can you hear me? So is the problem my my microphone? Is the problem your speakers? It's it's really hard to, to discern that. And it's the same type of issue. So AMQP has the idea of uh, I can send a message queue that I will know that something happened down there. And as the, the broker in this case um, can publish it back. Um, another app, uh, uh, protocol that's pretty common is DNP3, very common within power. That also follows a lot of those minimum architectures. But you know, when you mention about why it's the best suited, and if you're not in the power industry, you're probably not that familiar with DNP3. So it, it doesn't become a, a as supported of a technology that's there. So that kind of leads us back to, well, when I want to use automation products and I want to solve automation problems, or when I say factory automation problems, that's where MQTT comes in. So now for solution architects uh, that are looking at starting out with the unified namespace, uh, what are the components, platforms, or tools that are available out there that enable you to actually build a unified namespace data infrastructure? So there's a lot of tools that can be used to, to build a, a unified namespace. And it all depends on the problem that it is that you're trying to solve. Um, so a very common one that is specific for that is uh, from a company called HiByte. They have their intelligence hub. It supports a number of endpoints. So there's information that it can consume. So OPC UA, um, it has the ability of doing API calls. It can support um, SQL queries. There's a number of cloud infrastructure endpoints, so it can consume data. And what it's doing is building these data models or semantic data models. Uh, the people at HiByte will refer to themselves as a data ops platform. So that's just one tool that's specific for doing a unified namespace. Um, in, um, Ignition by Inductive Automation, um, it's another platform that has many of the same capabilities, uh, specifically from an automation standpoint. Um, but it also adds the idea or the, the component of some uh, visualization. So you can use either perspective or the vision. Those are a couple of modules. It also has the ability to do some historization. Um, although, I, you know, depending on where you are in your journey of this digital transformation, there might be other solutions to support that. Um, I can actually build a unified namespace with, uh, I mentioned Canary Labs earlier from a historian. Um, because it has the concept of virtual views, or um, sometimes those are called, um, you know, asset asset frames. I want to model a particular um, uh, asset that's out there. Uh, Factory Studio from Tatsoft, um, it has the ability to consume many of those same endpoints. 
the whole goal here, and this is where, where we start getting into the weeds a little bit of a unified namespace, is creating these semantic data models of, I'm not just looking at you know, these, these 12 different disparate points of data, I can look at it and say, okay, and I always use my compressor model, that, that's a motor. And then I can look at those motors as part of a larger asset called a compressor. And within that compressor, I can have maybe it's my compressed air system. But the point is that every system, every motor, every compressor looks like that same set of data. So it becomes that semantic data model of purely the asset. And this is where it starts to become a little more challenging because now I'm going to implement that asset into a structure or a hierarchical um, view of my, my business. So uh, referring back to ISA 95, there is a structure that's commonly used. Um, sometimes they're called a common data model, master data model, but it follows the enterprise site area line cell. I can take that model of my compressor and I can put that in my utilities area as part of my compressed air system. So you know, we're deviating a little bit from that line concept, but that is where I'm now going to structure the information that I'm being presented from my asset. Taking it one step further into a manufacturing line, not only am I going to capture, say, the asset or the information that's coming from a piece of equipment, whether it's a filling machine or a bottling machine, I'm now going to bring in some functional namespaces. Functional namespaces being things like I have a manufacturing work order that I'm now presenting as part of that line that's coming from my ERP that's integrated in. Um, I'm going to capture my um, availability performance and my quality metrics. So there's going to be a function of what's commonly known as OEE that's going to be measured, consuming information from that, say, asset model and then publishing some functional information back or material movements. I have some track and trace capabilities that are existing within the context of this line performance as well as I'm manufacturing this particular product on a manufacturing work order. All of that information is brought into context. And as you start adding more and more information and functionality, that's where you start creating this unified namespace to where every time you have an instance of, excuse me, an asset, an instance of a, a function, an instance of a, a manufacturing plant model, it's all going to follow a common semantic data model. Um, and then the last piece is how all this information is presented, because you may want to look at that same information differently than what I want to look at it. So based on what it is we're doing, we'll also create a, a display or a visualization namespace. The idea is that we're going to, you know, anybody that sits at you know, that would want to view that information the same as you or the same as me would be presented with that exact same information model. So you put all these components together and that's fundamentally you've now created this unified namespace. Well, oh, okay. That's so I, I just, just a lot there in the weeds and I yeah, hope it makes sense. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've touched, you've touched on quite a lot there. I think maybe we'll, we'll try to go into detail in each of, uh, of those, uh, uh, elements that you've already touched on. Um, uh, maybe we could start with the uh, the data normalization, right? So, like, I mean, as as you are quite aware, the industrial data comes in like in many shapes and forms and at different uh, times and stuff like that. So, this might require some sort of data wrangling before you push that into the unified namespace. So, yes. uh, what I would like to find out is: the, are there any common practices or data normalization techniques that you think are useful to employ in such a case? Yeah, the idea is we're taking different, you know, data that's different or like, you know, unlike data, and we're trying to make it like data. And we're trying to, to 
put some normalization to it in terms of if I were to look at a snapshot of, of the business, and that's part of this, this UNS definition, if I were to take a look at the existing state right now at this moment in time, what would all that information look like? So when you think about your automation data at the PLC layer, you're getting into millisecond, you know, certainly subsecond information changes, whereas this equipment or this, this process is moving down a manufacturing line, those checks are made quite often. What is my temperature measurement? What is my pressure measurement? What is my count coming off of this conveyor? Those types of things might be happening very quickly. But when I want to calculate, say, my process health of, you know, I mentioned my availability performance and my quality, if I want to measure those, I'm not going to look at that on a per second basis. I might look at that as a per minute basis. So how do you bring together this information, something that's changing every second to something that's really only changing or updating maybe every minute? What does that look like? So the normalization technique for that is the if you're utilizing a report by exception, it's I can have this new functional information either consumed or publishing into the tool. So I mentioned several tools to do that earlier that are now going to present this information um, in a in a common a common data model. So that's where if you were to take a look at, you know, think of a folder structure, if you're all familiar with like the file explorer, or as you start, you know, drilling into windows on your, uh, your computer, if you think of that same structure, you're going to have that same type of information. There's going to be a, say a folder there that is my, my asset performance, excuse me, my process uh, health data. So that's my OEE. I'm also going to have say my SCADA data, which is my stuff that's updated on a per second basis. But in a snapshot in time, I'm able to look at those things of at nine o'clock this morning, what exactly was all of this information? And I can look at that in the same type of, you know, it's been normalized. That information has been brought together. Information that's publishing at various intervals, I'm able to look at it in a uh, consistent interval. So now moving on, uh, I mean, you have already touched uh, a bit on ISA 95. Because uh, ISA 95 actually comes up a lot when we discuss uh, the unified namespace. So what I would like to find out from you is what is the role of ISA 95 in the unified namespace and how, how significant is it? So there's parts of ISA 95 that are still very much applicable. And I think sometimes you'll you'll get these and, and I've seen these posts as well where you know people will claim, oh, ISA 95 is dead. There's no more reason to use it ever. I find that those articles tend to be more of a, a, I don't want to say clickbait nature because I don't want to paint a broad brush across what those are. The point is, and I've tried to make this earlier, is that ISA 95 was a, you know, think of it as a framework or a specification that, I mean, there's some very good parts of it around, uh, you know, information modeling. I'm trying to exchange information in a way that is is common across assets or in common across systems. And that absolutely makes sense. We're doing the exact same type of thing here. I think where some people don't or misunderstand ISA 95, more comes from the hierarchical nature of how systems get connected together. We perceive ISA 95, we're informed by ISA 95 based on what's sometimes called as the Purdue Enterprise Reference Architecture. Again, keyword is reference. And it goes back to this, this industry 3.0 topic we, we had earlier, where this is how you connect these systems together. And that's where you want to start deviating or where, where I think you get, you know, I'm going to, you don't want to start deviating. You're not deviating per se. It's that, that's where you start to get 
hung up on this whole idea that my PLCs can only talk to my SCADA, that my SCADA can only talk to my MES. My MES will never, ever, ever in a million years talk to my PLCs, or they'll never exchange that information. That's the part of ISA 95 that is, no, we need to deviate. Remember, we're making these, these islands of functionality. We're creating these nodes within an ecosystem of I have a specific function, and this is the function that I'm going to do. It's I, I refer to the Unix model. I do one thing, and I do it well. That's what I'm going to, to publish. So my SCADA data, I'm going to present all of my count information. So in, in calculating your availability, performance, and quality, your count, you're, you're capturing your in-feed, out-feed, waste, and state, and you're using those to calculate some amount of your APQ values that we have referenced. My PLC is just going to be publishing that information in. My OEE engine, in this case, is now going to consume that information and present um, a, a count uh, or a, a you know the, your uh, your metrics back to you type of thing. So that's where it's not in the case of that only occurs at the MES and it has to come through my SCADA system. It's that I'm plugging in all of my technology into a, or plugging all my information into a technology, not necessarily into an application. So that's, that to me is ISA 95 still very relevant. It's just how we utilize that tool and that specification. You know, again, especially in part four, you're going to see a lot of these, it, it's all around exchanging information to systems. There's some really great information models for doing those types of things that we can all agree on. And, and that's where we start to get sideways is all this disparate data that we want to try to bring together. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Now, when we look at um, uh, ISA 95, is it is it part two that allows you to kind of like structure, uh, yeah, the, your, 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 yeah, create a structure of your inter enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, when using Sparkplug, uh, to create a structure for a unified namespace, there are limitations as far as the topic namespace is is is, is concerned, and um, there are techniques out there. There is a Schultz method and the Paris method that I've uh, read about, and um, one that I'm interested uh, right now to find out how it works is um, the, the 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 broker federation to make it easy for you to create that uh, uh, structure for your enterprise. So can you maybe? Kind of like uh, describe that for us. How does it look? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's go back to a comment I made earlier about you know the best part of MQTT is that you can publish to any topic. The worst part of MQTT is that you can publish to any topic. So if you wanted to set up your your unified namespace on a flat MQTT architecture, you have a lot more flexibility in doing that because I can publish into any topic. And that means that if I have an asset, I referred earlier to your enterprise site, area, line, and cell, information that's occurring at my cell level. So think of my bottling machine on a packaging line. That, informa that information that's there is going to exist at that cell level. And then more of my line performance is going to exist at that line level. And anything that's publishing and consuming that information has no issues publishing into that particular consuming from a topic as well as publishing to a topic. Where that can be challenging is now all of a sudden, I have two pieces of technology that want to publish into the same topic. Now that's bad. I mean, I can we can all agree on where that might get and why present a problem where all of a sudden I have two pieces of equipment that are wanting to share that same topic. And now it's okay, which one of these is the actual value? There's no limitations within the MQTT specification or to prevent that from happening. 
And so that's what the spark plug specification serves to address is the idea that we're going to have a common data payload within that. So we're consuming, the, the information is going to be known. We're also going to limit the, the topics that you can present or that you can publish to. And that's done through what's known as the group ID and the node ID. Those are unique within any publisher that is utilizing that, um, utilizing the Sparkplug B specification. So if you think about enterprise, site, area, line, cell, the, the, you know, the logical thing to do is that my group ID will be my enterprise and my node ID will be my site. Well, now you think about all the various pieces of technology that are going to exist within your manufacturing. They're going to want to present their information at that same enterprise site you know, line. And then it's like, oh, yeah, that's a problem. And that's one of the limitations that you run into with Sparkplug B. So the way you account for that, and this is the this is the method that I prefer, is that you now start making namespaces that say are an area namespace. So now within my packaging area, I can have my line one be that group node combination so that any of my, you know, my device ID are now going to be the cell. I'm still following thing in the structure of the business. All the information from all my lines in all my areas and all my cells are going into an area broker. So it's all sitting, uh, you know, let's call it lower in that, that hierarchy of the ISA 95 structure. And the advantage of that is now all of that information, because you know, I, I submit you're going to have a lot more information exchange in that area level from these different assets that are coming around specifically for lines. I mentioned we have, there's um, my manufacturing work order information. There's going to be my performance information. There's going to be my material movement information. All of these things that are occurring at the line, you have some efficiency gains in that particular architecture because now you have all these systems that are doing a lot of communicating back and forth that are taxing a resource that is sitting closer to um, where that exists. You then take that namespace, so that we'll call it the Aryan namespace, and you can elevate it and you can publish it into a higher level namespace. So you might have now a plant level namespace that is consuming all of these area namespaces. And now I can refer reference all of that information at that lower edge as my plant in my area or my site in my area. Or I can present it all the way up and all of these area namespaces now um, feed into what is my enterprise site or enterprise plant namespace that's made up of all these um, all these different systems. Um, I say, you know, I recommend that you have multiple brokers in order to do that. Um, and then you have a, uh, you know, all going into a, a common enterprise broker for that. And if that's, if you do want indeed use the, um, use that Sparkplug B specification or in, in order to process all that information. Does, does that explanation, does that make sense? Was that clear? Yeah, maybe just to get some uh, a bit of clarity there. So, when when the message is 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 uh, that namespace is pushed from the broker from that uh, area uh, namespace into like an enterprise or plant uh, broker, like is it still like a, a spark plug uh, namespace or is it like now like flat MQTT as it goes into the? Uh, oh, it's, it's it's still a spark plug. Yeah, I, I'm consuming this namespace and I'm now publishing that namespace out as a higher architectural, um, you know, or higher up in the architect or hierarchy of uh, the overall namespace. So it's still spark plug data. So think of a spark plug or the way that you handle this is that you're now taking 
you're 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 subscribing to that area broker. You're utilizing that that hierarchy to publish out your now uh, metrics that are part of this enterprise or site area, or excuse me, this site uh, broker. So you're the namespace that you're consuming. So um, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this. If if I consume a namespace, I can use that as my um, structure that I'm going to publish. Where's the data that I'm publishing coming from? Well, that data that you're publishing is coming from an area namespace that's sitting lower in that hierarchy. So it still maintains that spark plug and it has all the, the functionality. I can still send, you know, I still have all my D commands and commands, M data, D data, all of that information still exists. It's just in a, a different form of what you would if you tried to do all this as because once you get below that device ID, everything now just becomes a metric. Yeah, yeah, so it makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's it's a lot easier to present visually than it is to try to 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 explain, you know, with words and, and hand gestures. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, now to uh, move on. I mean, as you have already like um, uh, uh, described for us, there are some components that uh, feature prominently, like in most industrial architectures, which is like your your. MES system, ERP historians. Uh, can you describe to us how these would typically interact within a unified namespace? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, I, I guess I wanted to, you know, move on a little bit or spend a little more time around this, this spark plug conversation. And I think this is a, is a great uh, point to have it. So there's going to be two parts to this answer here. Um, so the first one is specific to your question, how does an ERP how does an MES, how does a historian interact with that? So typically when we think of a historian, we think of a process historian. This is something that is, it's going to create these trends. So I have all of my plant floor data, all of this, you know, think PLC tags that are presenting new information, their counts, their measurements, there are, um, you know, any number of pieces of data that come off that PLC, those are going to be historized. So from an architecture standpoint, if I am using a technology that supports my spark plug specification, I can now use a process historian that can consume those events. Canary Labs is one that I mentioned earlier. It will take that namespace and it will consume those and it'll historize. And it's just like any other endpoint connection you would have. A very common endpoint for people to use is either OPC DA or OPC UA. It acts like any other piece of technology that's coming through. It's just utilizing a different technology to support that. So from a process historian standpoint, it becomes the node in the ecosystem where I'm just going to consume this, this MQTT or spark plug data coming off the unified namespace. The beauty is, is that it already is presented in my historian in that, that unified namespace hierarchy where my tag names are gonna follow that exact same naming structure. And if you've utilized the method I mentioned earlier with Sparkplug, it's gonna be my area and my line and my cell. That's going to be your, your naming convention and all of that's done there. Um, you know, Another aspect that I don't know that I touched on the UNS is that all that data is presented in the same way. So if I'm an alarm, I'm presented exactly as an alarm. That's part of that semantic data model. It doesn't have some goofy name that I have to discern. Um, same type of thing applies. From an MES capability, as I mentioned earlier, so we'll utilize OEE, track and trace, you know, material movements, that's going to be consuming that same type of information. And depending on how you have integrated that MES functionality of OEE, that engine is going to consume from that, the, you know, I mentioned the in-feed, out-feed, uh, waste, and state. 
it's going to consume that information and it's going to get published back in. Now, how that publishing occurs, that's a function of that IoT platform or that, you know, that, that platform, the technology that we're utilizing to calculate that. Um, but that's how that information gets presented back into this unified namespace. Um, the same thing is going to occur from an ERP. And right now in most architectures, you have an IoT platform, you know, you know, any of the number that I mentioned earlier, that is going to look for changes. So a manufacturing work order is going to be created in my ERP system. You might even have a schedule that's created there. You're going to define a work order um, a payload or data data model. You're going to have a um, a schedule work order that's going to be created, and your platform that's creating and, and developing this unified namespace um, is now going to consume that information and present it down or present it to that unified namespace. So you'll end up with these, as I mentioned earlier, these islands of functionality, these nodes within an ecosystem that are all per performing some kind of function and presenting it into this unified namespace for other systems to consume. So kind of the second part, or like this, before I go on, is does that make sense? Was that clear of how these systems all interact? Yeah, so you'll, you'll have okay. technology, okay. So the second part of this is, I generally find that Sparkplug right now works great as that area broker, my automation payload, my telemetry data, my SCADA data, as it were. But once you start moving into some of these, these other systems, MES or your ERP, you might want to consider using a flat MQTT because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, so here's how I do it, or here's how you can do it with a, a spark plug full, you know, a spark plug unified namespace, but is that really the best thing you should do? And the beauty, a lot of the, the common brokers, and this becomes the minimum technical requirements is I'm going to be able to support flat MQTT. I'm going to be able to support a spark plug B specification all within that same technology exchange, because to me, a lot of that information that's coming from the ERP, that, that makes a little more sense coming into as a flat MQTT because it doesn't have some of the needs to both publish and you know consume that information or where it's publishing to is pretty much very different than where it's going to be consuming from, where you're not going to have that within that spark plug. You know, the, there's no concept of a, excuse me, a command within an, an ERP system. You know, command is open that valve. Well, you're going to have that at your SCADA layer you're not really going to have the same type of thing within, say, an ERP or an MES for that matter. Now, my, another interesting relationship uh, that I would like you to unpack for us is that of uh, uh, a, a data lake, right, which is like a central store of, of information and a unified namespace. Uh, are they are they complementary? Do they integrate with each other? What are the use cases then? Yeah, so from a data lake standpoint, and, and this creates a lot of, uh-oh, the data lake conversation, and, and how do we utilize that? What makes the most sense? And there's there's different approaches for how we want to use a unified namespace for fast forwarding and rewinding and what happens. So a unified namespace, if I were to look at it now, if I just subscribed right to, say, a broker and I visualized everything that is in there, I'm going to get a snapshot of what exactly is happening right now, current state of business. But if I want to know what happened yesterday, what's the best way to, to, to take a look at that information? If I'm looking at trending data, I might still use my historian client tools for looking at something like that. Or if I want to take a look at my line performance, I might go into my, my um, you know, the OEE 
a tool that I'm using to visualize, you know, what was happening, you know, yesterday, I could trend those tools, there's some analyses that can be run, a lot of your uh, MES tools are going to support that. Well, now, all of a sudden, it's starting to get a little, um, you know, out in the weeds as far as now I'm having to use all these different systems to try to do all this analysis. So one approach to solving this is what if I use a data lake? So now I'm going to take all of those snapshots in time, and I'm going to use some kind of streaming service like Kafka, and I'm going to feed that into a, a data lake service that's existing in one of the, the cloud providers. And then anytime I want to do some analysis, I can go into that data lake and I can pull that information. So I can see, you know, yesterday at um, 9 a.m., what product was I running? What was my manufacturing work order? What was the sales order? What was my performance? Who was running the line? What are my counts? All this information you can you can get out of this data lake and you can analyze it. And where you start getting into, you know, where you might start getting into trouble is that if I were to look at my historian data and I were to look at my data lake data, am I going to get the same answer? Now, ideally you will because the, the, the timestamps of that information because it was a report by exception should be ideal, but you can do some really cool things within a data lake that um, is, when you start doing those queries, you might get a little bit of different information depending on how say you're aggregating data and those types of things. So the flip side of this is that, and this is that unified namespace of, am I gonna have it perform other functionalities? What if you could present or have that UNS, that, that same endpoint that is the broker, also you know, providing some of this other functionality where I can now query my unified namespace, then it's really that single source of the truth because not only is all my data and events and the structure being captured in there, anytime I want to get information out of any of my systems, I have a common query that I can, um, or a queryable endpoint that I can go to to capture that information. So I, I think this is one of those areas that is going to continue to evolve. We're eventually going to land on something that is, is much like the, the what started the ISA 95 is we're going to land on this is kind of the best way to go about capturing this type of information. These are the systems. This is the technology that it should put support. And this is how you want to go about doing that. Um, you know, data lakes, I think, sometimes get a bad rap because, you know, the early um, variants uh, versions of a data lake is we're going to take all this plant floor data, shove it into a data lake, and then we're going to have our data scientists come in and make some magic, and then we're going to have all this wonderful information presented. And unfortunately, we ran into a lot of the issues that the UNS uh, it attempts to solve. So, Oh, yeah. So now, uh, speaking of uh, evolving uh, these systems, I mean, you have, you have highlighted uh, some drawbacks as far as the uh, unified namespace is concerned. Um, uh, the biggest of which is the is the inability of the UNS to to handle transactional interactions. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, are, are there any possible approaches to extend UNS with the uh, uh, transactional capabilities? Yeah, so within the transactional information, and this is probably more a limitation, not so much of a UNS, but a limitation of some of the technologies that are used. So I mentioned earlier some of the limitations of Sparkplug or the limitations of MQTT relative to NAMQP. So, you know, for the context of this conversation, it's the transactional data is I created a new quote, I created a new manufacturing work order, I created a new purchase order. These are all your business systems that you're trying to integrate. Well, that's more of a transaction of, I have some new event that is that exists at say, in this case, at the, the layer four of my industry or, or of my business, my enterprise. 
what does that mean for some of the other systems? And if, if I want to schedule a work order on line one, you know, here's a transaction where I have a new payload. How do you get that information down to the plant floor where it consumes that information or that you can validate that? And that's really some of the limitations within at least the MQTT spark plug. Um, you know, you could utilize a command for this because a command does give a response. But how do you know that the, um, you know, so I, I mentioned earlier about a, if I send a command to open a valve, how do I actually know that that valve opened? And that's some of that feedback loop within this transaction is that, well, now you have to, to have another payload that, yes, I can say I got the command. You'll know that I got it. You know, when my wife says, David, go clean out the dishwasher, I say, yep, I'll go clean it out. Unless I actually go do it, how does she know that that actually occurred? Unless I send her a message back saying, hey, I cleaned out the dishwasher and send her a picture uh, type of thing. It's just just a for instance. Um, so that that's part of that transactional nature of one of the things that we try to resolve in this case. So within the technology that we currently have approach for if you want to continue to use MQTT is that you will have this transaction. So it's I'm now scheduling a work order on line one. Line one can acknowledge that, yes, I received this, and it can also send another payload that, oh, by the way, here's the actual schedule, here's that information that got presented. So you end up in, in util, at least from the, the standpoint of an MQTT perspective, you end up creating some, and I don't want to call it a workaround, but it's a mechanism that you can continue to use that same technology to handle this transaction of schedule this particular uh, manufacturing work order. Um, does, that, does that make sense? On, on how all that works yeah yeah it does it does thank you for that yeah so um to conclude this session uh you are the president of a company called g5 consulting and engineering services uh can you tell us uh, more about the company and what services you offer yeah so it's is the name would suggest it's a lot of consulting and engineering services but it's predominantly around as a solutions architect and a systems integrator for a lot of your automation systems. Um, and I was asked, you know, recently of who are the people that you work with, you know, who should connect with me? Um, and, and I think probably a better answer than the one that I gave there is if you are a manufacturer and you want to digitally transform, what we focus on is that actual transformation of coming in and starting with where are you now? Where should you go? What are the steps in order to get there? And we bring in a lot of the assessments and the tools that are um, that are associated with doing those types of things. So um, from a manufacturer standpoint, if you want to digitally transform, um, that that's one of the services that is, is offered. Um, if you are um, another systems integrator and you need and you want to learn how to do these types of things, um, there's a number of integrators that uh, we work with in order to um, work with some of their end clients that are trying to do the same types of things. Um, you know, before we started the call, I mentioned that, that you know, you know we, we've only been really integrating since the since industry 4.0 really became more in vogue. And it's it's like my golf swing. I never had to correct a bad golf swing because I learned how I took lessons before I ever swung the club. Most golf lessons are are fixing bad golf swings. Um, that I, you know, in this this uh, analogy that I don't have. So I've only been doing the industry for. There's a lot of really great system integrators out there that have been doing industry three architectures. And again, those are not bad. So I don't don't misunderstand. But how do you learn how to do those those types of things? 
Um, so that's, you know, how do you, how do you architect these systems? How do you use these tools? What are some of the new tools that we need to work with? So, um, you know, that, that's another um, uh, service that's provided. And then just from a pure project management standpoint, sometimes you'll get projects that are um, 90% of the way there. I know I'm guilty of this on a lot of my home projects. I'm really good at starting them, maybe not the best at getting them all the way there. So there's some project management capabilities that if there's a punch list of, can you, can you just have somebody that will get us to that point of finally finishing it off, getting it done and dusted, signed, you know, signed, sealed, delivered, uh, if you will, those capabilities are as well. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So that uh, brings us to the end uh, of this uh, session. David, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come out here on the show and to share your insights with the audience. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It was a great conversation.